0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. I'm Russell Brand. This week I spoke to Dr. Edith Eager. Edith is a Holocaust survivor and writer. Her recent book, The Gift, 12 lessons to save your life is available now and i wanted to share this conversation with you for free and i'm grateful to luminary for allowing me to do that because i think it's important at this time of crisis and chaos and conflict to hear a voice from someone who survived the most extreme situation in recent history the holocaust at a time of uh, much division and a hateful rhetoric, confusion from all sides, here is a voice that can be truly unifying. If you enjoy this episode, you might consider going over to luminarypodcast.com to have a week's free trial for the Luminary Network, which houses my podcast, Under the Skin, where there's hundreds of fantastic episodes, not to mention all of the content from other brilliant content providers such as Trevor Noah and uh, Lena Dunham. There's loads of fantastic stuff on there. Um, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider joining Luminary Podcasts, go over to luminarypodcast.com and uh, sign up there, you Can get you can get a subscription for as little as $2.99 a month. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Edith, I found it heartening and we really we asked Luminary if we could put it out for free for all of you because I think it's important at this time where there's so much focus on fear and so little certainty to hear someone who has been through about as, as traumatic situation as you can imagine and come out the other side with a message of hope Unity, spirituality, and love—it's not something that you know we can just sort of, you know, uh, cross our fingers and whistle towards. But it is possible, and there's some important guidance in this conversation from a valuable elder. I hope you enjoy it. But before we get into that, let's um, look at some comments from the Nick Hayes podcast last week. Nick, who's uh, let's call him a, a Roma, a rambler, a trespasser, a philosopher, a poet, an illustrator, a wandering madman. Tizmaria86 says, I'm not allowed to access the beach as it's illegal. I can't drive to a lake for a walk that's 15 minutes away. Last time I did that, I had five police officers tell me I'm not local and I'd be fined. I'm not allowed to drive across the border unless it's essential. Living in a town where it's already been in lockdown before any pandemic, prisoners in our own homes. We are talking about freedom here, Tizmaria, and the erosion of our personal freedoms in many, many ways. It's a fascinating subject. Anna Reynolds, in Sweden, we got Alice Manstraten. Oh, good old, lucky old Sweden. And they're Alice Manstraten. A law of public access, so anyone is allowed to spend time in nature anywhere and even camp without asking, as long as you don't destroy or disturb. Sensible. This is wonderful, and especially now when more and more people discover how to socialise outdoors. I hope we can make this a Swedish export. The Swedes, eh? You've got to love them. Do you love the Swedes, Jen? Yeah. What do you love most about them? ABBA, Volvos, oh, I love Abba. Saunas, getting dark at free ABBA. Abba. <laughs> ABBA.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So ABBA are great.
0: I love all sorts. What about Ibsen? That's Sweden, isn't it? Ibsen. What's Ibsen? He's a playwright, Pierre Gint, you know, that uh. kind of thing. No, you don't. Care ABBA. That. ABBA, <laughs> sticking with ABBA. <laughs> You've been to Switzerland? Yeah. What happened there?
1: Played some video games.
0: Do you have any toberon? No, bring the, bring the shops are closed. Uh,
1: the shops are closed. Why? Because it was the weekend and they're Swiss.
0: The Swiss shut down chocolate at the weekend. But well, there
1: was no co-op.
0: Couldn't but... you get a cuckoo clock or something? <laughs> no. No cuckoo clock. No we chocolate. We had no food. Can you see mountains from yeah. where you're staying? Yeah. Is the air fresh? Yeah. Not much litter on the
1: street. No.
0: What? do they put any telly on at any point? See normal telly, like no. okay, local news. No.
1: No. <laughs> Didn't, I did think about so your come chocolate. Back from and Switzerland,
0: <laughs> and basically, all you can tell us is no, I can't get your cuckoo clock or any chocolate, and the air's a bit fresh. I and can't. you had to be prompted for that, Jen. I
1: did
0: think about your chocolate. Oh, thanks. <laughs> oh, what, what I might do is settle down for a nice snack on some thoughts. <laughs> now, I hope that when Edith Eager listens back, she fast forwards through this part this is a woman who has spent who has stared death in the face and experienced incredible grief and come up with a philosophy that's relevant to our time she'll be forced to you your verbal postcard of a trip to Switzerland why are you so
1: upset about the chocolate?
0: I'm starving, is the fact no disrespect to people that are genuinely starving
1: (laughs) it's Uh, not appropriate
0: no, I know, I'm
1: out of touch I'm out of touch, Jen especially with the topic What? Of the podcast.
0: That's the topic, starvation, part of it. Well,
1: yeah.
0: She's been through actual starvation. I mean, you're right.
1: Then you're complaining about not getting chocolate.
0: Don't turn (laughs) this on me. I am the very kind of person who might very well try to end this latent crisis and growing political crisis through my own sweet kindness. And what do I need? Just the occasional <laughs> nibble on a bit of pistachio vegan chocolate, you and you can't even provide me with that, can you, Jenny Mayfin? All right, well let's get let's get into our podcast with the wonderful uh, Edith Eager, See what we learn from that. And remember, you should be subscribing to my YouTube channel and to my uh, email list. And is there anything else that we want to follow me on social media? Ask
1: me anything.
0: Ask me anything. I do this thing where you can ask me anything. How do you describe it, Jenny? <laughs>
1: People leave a little voice memo personally to you.
0: How do they do that?
1: Russellbrand.com forward slash ask me anything.
0: Are you going to say ask me anything in the little tune or no. not? Why?
1: It's not part of my personality. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Jen, I've been studying your personality, and it's in need of some urgent revisions. <laughs> <No. laughs> I call it. If your if your personality was a building, it would be condemned.
1: Why?
0: Lack of safety. <laughs>
1: it's, oh. I saw. Blot I on the landscape. It. No, I think I'd be good architecture.
0: Yeah, what do you mean? Like, if you were a building, <laughs> what type of... Me, I'd be a glorious palace, would I?
1: No. What would I be? Maybe like a... Oh, no. What, did
0: you, what was you going to say? Like a
1: gothic building.
0: All right, I'll take that. Yeah. And what are you, like a moss-covered old shed?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a 70s building?
0: Yeah, that's right. Like, really sort of an d- insult to its occupants. What? You know, one of those ones that's just been slammed up around the no. elephant in castle. And they try and say it's listed, but you go, well, it's listed. What's the, what type of list?
1: The good list. <laughs> I think so, Jen. <laughs>
0: All right, well, let's get into uh, this podcast with uh, anything and uh, put this blood, put everything into some kind of context. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a no, successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in
2: this era where it turns out we were never the boss. does look like an ideology.
0: What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told. And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the skin. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Very, very, very
2: happy to be here very very happy to be here I uh, understand that uh, you're a wonderful actor <sighs> and uh, we can we can really talk about whatever you think would be appropriate for people to look at us as good role models, how to turn tragedy into into a tremendous victory and so I want to honor you this morning uh, because you are at the age that people can really recognize that there are no problems in the world. There are only challenges. And there people talk about midlife crises. No, I don't think it's a crisis. I think it's a transition. And uh, so I'm 93. And I have grandchildren your age, so consider me hopefully not a smart woman, but a wise, I I hope to be wise. And I think you're the wise one for the young people not to mess with their brain.
0: Well, Edie, thank you very much for saying that. That's extremely kind of you. And I wanted to begin our conversation by asking if I may, at this time where there is so much political discourse, so much conversation around pain and explicitly and especially reference to fascism, Nazism, white supremacy. In your position as a survivor of the Holocaust, how do you feel about these comparisons, and do you see any or feel any uh, social resonance or anything redolent of your previous experiences when you were younger?
2: Unfortunately, yes. I can see a beginning of mass hysteria and. I was very happy to hear from Schwarzenegger that he's also reminded of his childhood and uh, I am very sad about that because I came to America after Nazi Germany and communist Russia and I was hoping to find democracy and yet when I was working in a factory, I didn't speak English, so they gave me things to cut and I got seven cents per dozen. So I worked very fast because I became the breadwinner because my husband ended up in a TB hospital. So uh, the shocking experience I had in 1949 in Baltimore, Maryland, that they were two bathrooms and one of them sat current. And then, i like to tell you that I don't think love is what you feel, love is what you do. So I gathered the women and I joined the NAACP and guess what? I marched with Martin Luther King in Washington. I was in Washington, 1963 singing with the mamas and the papas. You don't go that far, but I, I hope you do because uh, it was a wonderful time when people were uniting and, uh, and doing everything they can to stop fascism. And uh, so I am right now, yesterday I got the vaccine and I took to Thailand also, I'm a little drunk uh, this morning talking to you. Um, but I came to America penniless in 1949, didn't have $6 to get up the board. And, uh, and so I was very poor and, and um, America means a lot to me and democracy means a lot to me. I like to be for something rather than against. You see, I I refuse to live in fear. I I don't think fear and love coexist. So I I, I, I look always for the light in the darkness.
0: Yes, and thank you. That's really beautiful. And having uh, followed and attended that uh, famous march with dr king in 1963 and being a participant in that wonderful historic moment which as you have alluded to also came from darkness came from the darkness of uh, segregation racism jim crow slavery having yourself experienced what you experienced in europe And then experience this optimism, albeit optimism born of a type of darkness and oppression in the United States. Uh, What do you feel happened to the goodwill and power of that civil rights movement? Where do you see its presence today? And what would you say to young people engaged in activism and shaping the world about the lessons they can learn from both of these sort of powerful? and symbolic moments in your life, this, the Holocaust and the Second World War and the progressivism and civil rights movement of the 1960s?
2: i like to tell you, why don't I tell you a little something? I'm Hungarian and there was a guy writing a book about the Britishers and he said that in Hungary, people used a hot water bottle to enhance sex but in Britain, it replaces it, and uh, and that's.
0: <laughs> I don't know how it can enhance. It. I'm British. All I know that it's yeah that I have a hot water bottle. Uh, how do you use it to improve sex? Edith? In what? In what... <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm just telling you about how people talk about other people. How much Tylenol have you had today?
2: I just like to tell you that everything including Auschwitz, was an opportunity. Everything in life. And and I will tell you as a survivor that I refused to be a victim because it's not my identity. It was what was done to me. And that's very important because I'm also a diplomat in sexology that was in the 90s when I became that because they began to work with women and men who were sexually abused and and kept it as a secret and um, what comes out of your body you know doesn't make you ill what stays in there does so i began to really um work with better wives uh, even though they leave their husband they keep going back because they were brainwashed him telling his wife, that she's nothing without him, and uh, so Auschwitz is not the beginning and the end of my life. It's the schoolroom where I was discovering my inner strength that no Nazi could ever kill me. So I bring you that 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 chutzpah. And to let you know that if I can't get in the front door, I'm going to try the side window. And if that doesn't work, I'll look for the chimney. So next is a very good English word. I have a friend and a guy who leaves. She says, I give him two days. And then I say next. And that's what kept me alive in Auschwitz, my curiosity. What's going to happen next? So I teach people today how to respond rather than how to react. You don't react, because when you react, you don't think. So you have to watch a movie called The Karate Kid. You know, remember? Of course. Yeah, Uh, to have patience. Rather than fight or flee, you learn the third alternative. You learn how to respond. I could not change what was outside of me. They could have thrown me in a gas chamber. I didn't know four o'clock in the morning what's going to happen next. I didn't know when I took a shower whether gas or water is going to come out. So there is a difference between reacting or responding.
0: And what is that difference fundamentally, please?
2: that I still have a choice to acknowledge that I cannot change my genes. So there are the genes, that is the environment, and then I choose the way I respond to the other two. I still have that choice because life Life and food was was, uh, positive in Auschwitz, and death and hunger was the negative. And I remember somebody next to me found a mirror. Imagine in a latrine, she found a mirror. And in no time at all, I'm, I'm seeing her, and she tells me that she's Marie Antoinette in her boudoir, doing herself, you know, we we were bold, totally, she is the, what you think you create. I wish I could meet that woman now, that she was able to take herself out of that hell, and create an environment. And that's what you and I do. We create an environment that people can feel any feelings without the fear of being judged. There is no right feeling or wrong feeling. There is only my
0: feeling. We create reality, we create external reality from our inner life and our inner experience we can control our experience of reality through this choice of whether or not we respond or react to it Uh, i'm fascinated to hear that you are able to correlate these extreme experiences in your early life with uh you know also extreme but in a different way experiences of women experiencing abuse or the victims of sexual uh, sexual abuse of any gender. And I am minded of the work of um, Victor Frankl, of course, who you were uh, friends with and I believe taught by. Can you explain to us a little about your relationship with Victor Frankl, please?
2: Victor Frankl, I was at the university and someone gave me a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And by the way, I will send you my book because it's in it. Uh, so I came home with that book and two o'clock morning, I opened that book and I couldn't put it down because for every page I wanted to write 10 more pages. Because you see, when I came to America, I just wanted to be a Yankee Doodle Dandy. So I put that part of me, I, I just completely went underground. I didn't have the verbal capacity that Victor Funkel gave me the permission that's a very big word in my vocabulary. Give yourself permission to not talk about feeling or medicate feeling as they do in America, but to feel the feeling because there is no healing without feeling. The fear feel, don't medicate grief. You know, I'm on a faculty at the medical school and uh, thank God, the. People who come in, the psychiatrists, uh, are not really medicating grief now. They recognize that it's a natural reaction to a loss, and you cannot heal what you don't feel. So it is really a kind of a rebirth, and they call me a midwife. And I like that, that I'm a spiritual midwife, that you're pregnant and you give birth to the you, that was meant to be because we give up our genuine self early on to fit the family dynamics. So it becomes a drug of choice. So now I think freedom is to let go and not to carry the hate because if I carry the hate, I'm still a hostage of the past. I live in the present. I can only
0: touch you now. How do you do that, allow yourself to fully experience pain? Can you ex- explain to us what, and explain to me what that process is like? And can you explain to me too the, uh, how you learned that from Viktor Frankl and did you learn that directly or through his work?
2: Well, you know, I I became so... <laughs> So excited that I I wrote a I wrote a paper about Viktor Frankel and me, you know, me, the little one, and he, the big, big Viktor Frankel. And one day I received a letter from Vienna. Viktor Frankel wants to meet me in San Diego. He was a professor at the university. Um, uh, international university and that's how we met. And I became a diplomate in logotherapy. I did the keynote address for his 90th birthday. I uh, even danced with him at one of the conferences. And and so without man's search for meaning, I don't think I would be talking to you today as I do so. He was 30 something in Auschwitz and I was 16 in love. So we were at the different times in our lives. And yet when we met, he said that when he was tortured that he closed his eyes and imagined that he's at the Viennese lecture hall, lecturing about about the psychology of the concentration camp. And I said, when I danced for Dr Mengele, I too closed my eyes and I imagined that the music was Tchaikovsky and I was dancing the Roman Juliet and the Budapest Opera House. It's amazing. Both of us checked out and uh, used still a way that we could choose to somehow know that everything is temporary and that we can survive it.
0: Obviously, I'm fascinated to uh, hear more about your experience dancing before the almost mythic Dr. Mengle, who oversaw the sort of, uh, barbaric experimentation and torture of the inmates of, of uh, various concentration camps. and can you tell us that story?
2: I think it's important for me to say that unfortunately genocide is here with us today, but never in the history of mankind such a scientific and systematic annihilation of people existed because they were celebrating after one day that they can put 30,000 Jews in the oven in one day. I am part of that final
0: solution of Eichmann. Can you explain to us what that was like on um, on a uh, experientially to meet someone l- like Joseph Mengele and whether it conforms to Hannah Arendt's uh, analysis of uh, evil as ultimately being sort of banal and ordinary and unremarkable when you see its human face. What was it like? At, what did it feel like for you as a 16 year old to be in the company of, of such a person?
2: I, I am not an idealist. I hope to be a realist because when you're an idealist and if you don't find exactly what you're looking for, you can become very sarcastic. Uh, Hungarians are very sarcastic, very cynical, and that kind of humor, I don't think it's not good. I think it's got a knife in it. You know, that's the person who at the dinner table, when someone says a joke, they don't listen to the joke. They like to outdo the other one and uh, to think of a better joke. You know, I think in Auschwitz, We didn't have competition or domination, we had to have cooperation. And I think that's where you and I are today, to also have a dream, just like Martin Luther King, that we can use every experience, how to unite and how to empower each other without differences. Because you are you and I am I, but two of us are stronger with each other than me alone or you alone. So that's why it's so important, hopefully, to take our blessings that God gave me that freedom on May 4th, 1945, when the 71st uh, infantry came in, Uh, I call it the saints came marching in, I'm going to be introduced um, um, Friday to Brene Brown, and she wants to know five songs that I really cherish and like. And when the saints came marching in, and uh, and so I'm, I'm thinking of that. But you know, there is a great uh, blessings that I was able to chosen by Dr. Mangala to go the other side because I was following my mother going to the gas chamber. And then I know he looked me over and I wore a dress that my father made. Uh, He was a dress designer and I wore a silk dress with two little pom-poms. I have the dress. to show you too. Uh, And I I have a feeling that he might have thought that somehow he just grabbed me and told me, you're going to see your mother very soon. She's just going to take a shower. I never forget those eyes. Today, I, I am very much into the eye that I can kill you with my eyes, or I can love you with my eyes. And You and I created that environment and I did work with a white supremacy boy who was 14 and joined a group headed by David Koresh in Texas You before your time.
0: No, I remember the Waco cult.
2: Yes, you do. You're very brilliant, by the way, you're talking about Hannah, I I mean, come on, thank you, thank Thank, you, thank you you for your brilliant mind and your
0: warm heart. Thank you very much, Edie. I wanted to ask you then, when you talk about this uh, impetus, impetus for us to heal one another, How you think that at this time of division, I'm speaking particularly at this moment in the United States, although it's a a global phenomenon. part of which seems to be a return to nationalism. Another part seems to be the rise of corporate power and technological power. Uh, How do and but division, it seems, is everywhere. What values, what ideas do you feel we must promote that can bring together these opposing I, uh, groups, in a, a, if not a celebration of humanity, then an acceptance of humanity uh, to to create a kind of pathway for us. Because at the moment I see so much division and uh, a, a, such a great deal of despair. I, I wonder how unity can be achieved again.
2: To become a compassionate listener. In the English language, when someone is angry, you're gonna hear the word you. When I speak at schools, I tell young people, when someone says you, take a deep breath and say, I'm gonna be dumped on. And the more they talk, the more relaxed I become. You take the negative stimuli and you take a deep breath and say, that I'm practicing my low frustration tolerance level. And then when they're done, you say, thank you for your opinion. That you don't deny someone else's truth. When Ahmad Dijidat said that the Holocaust didn't exist, it wouldn't do me any good telling him that I was there because, because he is following what Plato said. I'm sure he didn't read Plato, but he said that you have to think of a lie and it has to be a big one. And then you repeat it, repeat it until people believe it. So what do you think the biggest problem we have in America? Denial? Uh
0: Yes, denial and oppositionism a lack of this compassion that you're talking about, an unwillingness to hear other people's opinions or honour their pain and suffering, a kind of loss of optimism, a loss of faith. I I read, Edie, that after you came to America, it was some time before you were able to address or deal with the pain of your loss and suffering, particularly of your mother, and I wonder where the permission to feel and heal that came from and I wonder how this kind of personal experience experience, albeit a historic experience can be used by those of us that are experiencing more ordinary suffering how we use that in our own spiritual development and evolution
2: you know, I went to Jewish school when I was a girl, and when I came out, children were spitting at me and calling me a Christ killer. So I hated Christmas. I didn't want to be a Christ killer. You see, so anti-Semitism was way before his Hitler. You see, you don't born to hate. You 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 learn to to hate and uh, and love is not what you as i said is not what you feel is when you decide uh, to speak out but when i came to america i just wanted to be a yankee doodle dandy i wanted to learn how to speak english and i uh, did work in a factory And then I ended up going to school and I graduated with uh, honors, um, cum laude, not summa cum laude. And um, so I I very much promote uh, education and tell children to be realistic, not idealistic. Um, And in America, the more pieces of paper you pick up, more doors open up for you. So I asked them to get a PhD, get an MD, get as far as you can, and then um, you're going to speak what you live. I, I, I tell you what I lived. And I tell you that the closer I was to the darkest places, the more light I was experiencing. That this is temporary and i can survive it i did not allow anybody to murder my spirit and this is what you and i are moving beyond the body and the mind and that's what logotherapy and victor Frankl is all about find meaning and purpose in your life it's an existential, phenomenological, beyond the body and the mind. You
0: see. Do you think of this as a fundamentally spiritual idea, Edith? Do you think of this when you talk about finding light in this great darkness? Do you feel that this is indistinguishable from God in in your language?
2: Yes, I think my God. My God is Tinker and the Free Spirit. And uh, and uh, I think uh, uh, that, that God was with me in Auschwitz. When people ask, where was God in Auschwitz, I say, God didn't kill my parents. People did. And uh, you learn to hate. And I was able to turn the hate into pity and began to really feel sorry for the gods that they're wearing this uniform and they're throwing children in the oven without even gassing them because they listened. But Hitler couldn't have done it alone either. So you know, blaming is for children. Why do you blame you're still a child?
0: Wow, that's interesting. But blaming is a, a lack of maturation. You have to let go of blame to proceed.
2: I think so. If you ask a child, why do you do that? Because I feel like it. <laughs> you know, That's all. That's a kid, right? I don't care. I don't care if uh, my mind or nah, no, I feel like it. I'm going to have it right now, this minute. And that voice is with us. God gave us temptation. Why? So we practice the freedom of choice. You know, the booze is just sitting there, or for that matter, the chocolate cake. It's up to me whether I'm going to reach for it or not. So nobody makes me feel anything. See, when you're angry, you're bankrupt because you allowed other people to get to you. Father starts screaming at the kid when he's supposed to really be a role model to the kid, the way he treats uh, the children's mother and uh, anybody. You know, when men start screaming, they don't realize that they're totally bankrupt.
0: Do you feel that the the only way to avoid this spiritual bankruptcy is through the maintaining active presence with purpose or meaning or the light of god and how, what practices do you use to maintain that? And also, what was the? You know, it seems like there was a transitional. It seems like you were kept alive by your spirit in the at the height of your suffering. But it also feels that like there was an intermediary period between your arrival in the United States and a kind of secondary awakening, where you it feels like were able to access your purpose, access your pain process your pain i i wonder what this second journey is what is the what is the the fabric of this second journey this second journey to personal fulfillment when removed from the condition of crisis which it sounds like you were navigated through the presence of div- divinity in some form
2: i think that when i was liberated. Well, let me tell you, a couple of days ago, I watched a movie, and the movie was about Helen Keller, Um, the name of the movie is uh, She's Deaf and Blind, and and they hire someone from Britain to take care of her. And uh, towards the end of the movie, uh, they have a dinner and they run out of water. So she takes uh, um, the, the pitcher and takes Helen Keller to get water. And as they get the water she finally opens her mouth and says water, you know, in a very, very, very slow way. And that triggers, that's a good word, triggers something in me. Because when I was liberated, I didn't know how to write. And it took me months. I couldn't write a capital G, a capital G. So, you know, people say, oh, you overcome. No. And it's not in my vocabulary. I don't overcome. I come to terms with that, but it's not allowing me to rule my life. I don't live in Auschwitz. It's my cherished wound that kept me. So, you see, uh, suffering is part of life suffering makes you stronger not to ever give
0: up do you feel that in addition to there being a a a kind of personal connection to the divine during this time that you also had relationships with other people like you described the woman with the mirror was it or did you also access hope through your relationship with others, your relationship with your sister? How can we be of service to each other in crisis?
2: You know, once uh, I started to work uh, in the healing arts profession, and I had two paraplegics coming from Vietnam, uh, one of them was, uh, was in a fetal position, why me? And just chronically angry, how did uh, God do this to me? And, And blaming the country. And conversely, the other one said to me the following, and I quote, hey doc, God gave me a second chance, and I'm in a wheelchair, and you know what? I'm so blessed because I can see the flowers much closer and I can see my children's eyes and I feel like an imposter. And I said to myself, I cannot take them further than I have gone myself. And I'm wearing a coat, a lab coat that says, Dr. Eager, Department of Psychiatry. And I've, I was the biggest fake. And I decided to go back to Auschwitz, to go back to that lion's den, to look at the lion in her face, to reclaim my innocence. And I went to my sister Magda who was with me to come with me to honor our family who died. And she told me I'm an idiot. I'm a masochist. So who's right? I'm only right for me. I cannot be right for anybody else. And that's how it was. We had each other. We had to form a family of inmates. If you were only for the me, 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 you didn't make it. I had a girl, it's in my book, who told me that we're going to be liberated by Christmas. And guess what, we were not, and she died. That's how strong what we think we create. So you got to think about your thinking and pay attention to your inner dialogue, but it can change your body chemistry, and that is science. The way you think in the morning, and you use words like always, never, You know, I'm never going to find a man. Women tell me that, Edie, I need a man. And I say, if I were a man, I would run from you. (laughs) You're not very desirable when you're so full of anxiety. But you can turn anxiety into excitement. You're doing that. You're doing that.
0: Maybe you're just
2: channeling
0: something. Edith, much of what you say, it seems to me, is built upon the mm, dedication to the principles of prioritizing the inner life, the significance of the inner life, which may function as a a portal to eternity and eternal values counterposed with the outer life and its continual change and transience and unreliability. I wonder if in your book you talk about ways in which people who... Because I often wonder when I hear about people that have uh, access to greatness, whether that's in athletics or in the arts or in your case Uh, an ability to survive and metabolise and perhaps even alchemize painful, negative experience into the genius of compassion, the genius of love, the genius of benevolent experience. I sometimes wonder if we don't all have access to that resource, that some people may need instruction, guidance, that as you say, some people in the conditions that you were in were Able to find this light yourself, Viktor Frankl, and I'm sure countless nameless others. But were there too, I presume, people that collapsed as a result of this horror and terror? As in ordinary life, there are people that find it impossible to live within the conditions of everyday, even the and perhaps particularly the mundanity of a family, the economic insecurity of. ordinary and everyday life what do you propose to people that do not have this propensity that if I may say it appears you have this force within you if people aren't able to access that as easily what guidance do you offer what steps do you propose
2: you know people don't come to me they're sent to me and so I had this woman wearing a big cross coming to me and was telling me that uh, uh, she wants my help. She is very angry at her husband. He cheated on her. And so I looked at that big cross, as she was really angry at the husband, I said, would you be so kind and repeat what I'm going to say? She says, what? And I said, I forgive myself for putting judgment on my husband and she wants to kill me, that beautiful big cross, and I say to her, what did Jesus do with the woman who committed adultery? You see, so I bring down the big guns that what are you saying and what are you doing? And uh, how can she argue with me that there was a little Jewish boy who became a prophet who told us, love thy neighbor as thyself. That love really begins with me when you get up in the morning, when you look in the mirror and say, you know, I honor the one-of-a-kind, unique, authentic person that there'll never be another me. That kind of a language. So uh, pay attention what you're paying attention to because any behavior you pay attention to, you reinforce the very behavior that you want extinguished. So, two things. Think about your thinking and pay attention what you're paying attention to.
0: Edith, may I ask, do you uh, meditate and pray regularly?
2: Yes, I do. I, uh, I don't call it anything other than uh, uh, when I come home, I uh, thank God for bringing me home safe in my car. Uh, It's a lot of thank yous, really. It's not meditation or when I'm sitting and uh, no, I don't think so. I I, I think the East and the West, and I try to see how I can be the best uh, person to give to the world what I practice. So I like Since my parents died when I was 16, I like to do what I'm doing to go through the grieving feeling and healing. So I ask my patients to hold my hand and we revisit the places where you've been. And the first question is, when did your childhood end? Because many of us gave up our true self maybe you had to take care of daddy um, pick him up at the bar somewhere maybe we had to take care of mommy because she had migraine headaches and she was still wearing her nightgown at four o'clock in the afternoon you know it's very important to revisit the places where you've been and then then you you change your life and you're kind of pregnant when you come to me and I become the midwife that you give birth finally to the new that was meant to be free.
0: <sighs> I am in uh, recovery from drug and alcohol addiction and I once heard the term recovery described as in recovery, we recover the person we were intended to be, that there is uh, a a version of ourselves waiting to be born that has been warped and impeded by trauma i love this idea edith that we visit and honor our own personal mythology we revisit the places of the wound we are unafraid to visit and occupy the shadow and to practice forgiveness in this place for towards ourselves and i presume although you have not explicitly said so forgiveness for those that have transgressed against us is this forgiveness towards others fundamental to your philosophy i see forgiveness as a gift
2: that that i i uh I can liberate myself. I don't have godly powers to forgive anyone for anything. But I'm going to tell you when I took care of that young boy who was part of the David Koresh movement, um, he came to see me and he said, I am a boot boy and I know nothing about boots Then that was in Texas and uh, and I acknowledged his booth. And then he got up and he took his elbow, put it on my desk and said, hey God, it's time for America to be white again, and I'm gonna kill all the Jews, all the N-word, all the Mexicans, all the chinkos. If I would have reacted, I would have taken that boy. I would have dragged him to the corner. I would have stepped on him and I would have told him, who do you think you're talking to? I saw my mother going to the gas chamber, but I go to my God. I say, God, you sent people to me and I don't understand. (laughs) What is that all about? And you know what God said to me? Find the bigot in you. And I said, it's impossible. I came to America penniless. I marched with Martin Luther King. Didn't do me any good. And not until I created the environment. That that poor boy gave up his ultimate freedom to David Koresh. And I looked at him as lovingly as I could, and I say, "Tell me more. Love is time."
0: <sighs> wow, that's cool.
2: You didn't recover, you discovered. So Auschwitz was not about recovery, but discovery. and when you start using, you stop growing. You don't play with the full deck. So if you started to use at 14, and right now you're 38, I'm still talking to a 13-year-old. I know, need to know who I'm talking to. That's what I tell doctors. When they go to medical school, they stop growing emotionally. You either medicate or you cut it out. You don't have time to feel feelings with your patients. I do I
0: don't stick to the 45-minute hour. You've said there, love is time. You've said before, love is doing. Also, I've understood that gratitude is part of your faith to remain in gratitude. And it seems to me that much of what you're um, uh, espousing or telling us is that uh, remaining present with people... uh, uh, and not actually, it seems, if I may say, Ed, judging them on the basis of what they present to you, creating the possibility that people don't even know, as in the case of this young boy and his bigoted language, that this is a, a dislocated um, sort of explosion rather than any real expression.
2: It's a lie. It's a lie.
0: Yes. It's a lie. I, I, I wonder. Do you believe the same to be true in this time of division and uh, conflagration, when again we hear the language of nationalism and the language of condemnation from different groups about one another, that that this that beneath it, underneath it, beyond it is uh, undiscovered love. You know what happened last
2: Wednesday in America was headed by the white supremacy, they were wearing shirts that six million was not enough. You know that? I didn't know that when I heard that. Uh, uh, That is very sad, especially for someone who realizes that that little Jew, Einstein, came to America and changed the whole history of World War II would have been very different without that little Jew, Albert Einstein. This is a country of immigrants and that's why the truth shall prevail and And I'm very sorry for seeing people coming and wanting to kill and they wearing that moose and they were, they came with with a plan that it wasn't just overnight, it must have been organized. Um, people all who who chose violence and hatred and division. And so I, I hope we can unite and empower each other with our differences, that you can be you. You know, I am going to be uh, Friday interviewed by Brené Brown and she's asking me five songs that I like. And, you know, I was liberated by the GIs and they taught me Boogie Woogie. And so I am into the big band. Uh, I am into uh, Judy Gerland. And of course I am with uh, with the big band. and uh, uh, And so, uh, my favorite is Casablanca. You must remember this. I, I just said, any of those songs, uh, five of those, uh, uh, see, I don't know anything about uh, your, um, your music. It, it doesn't turn me on, but anything that has to do with the big band, ah, <laughs> I come alive. I wanna dance, I'm still dancing. And uh, I think uh, life is about the rhythm of the dance and to really celebrate our uniqueness and knowing that there'll never be another me. So I am at the evening time of my life. And of course the question comes up, how do I want to be remembered? I'm gonna be very happy in my deathbed. bed. That's what I wrote my daughter three years ago when I was about to die in a hospital. They, They intubated me and they put this thing in my mouth and I wanted to take it out so they tied my hands. And so I wrote it to my daughter, I want to die happy. And I know today more and more that I concentrate on every moment that in the evening, I feel very good at the end of my life. Not what the world has given me or not given me. Uh, It's it's what I was able to hopefully give. Mm. And of course, I have seven great-grandsons and in their home, on the living room, are my books. So they carried that blood and I carried the blood of my ancestors who didn't have it as good and they never gave up.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's so beautiful. I may say also that you look uh, wonderful today and I note that you wear a butterfly around your neck and butterflies on your beautiful scarf and the symbol of metamorphosis and change and rebirth seems very important in your work.
2: I love that, yes. I, I love the, the idea of letting go the chrysalis so you can fly freely like a butterfly. But the butterfly doesn't fly right away. I studied that. They, they rehearse. Richard Burton didn't perform Hamlet overnight. You got to rehearse it. And then, then you go so don't think that you go from here to there and you're done (laughs) it's lifelong uh process you climb the mountain you slip but you never stop climbing so i have yet to arrive i have yet to arrive i have my grandson is forming something something I know nothing about the computer. I don't know podcast from (laughs) I delegate all that.
0: Very sensible, if I may say, doctor. Edith, thank you very much for your time and for your wisdom and for your compassion and your kindness and for these invaluable lessons at this crucial uh, time in our civilization. I'm so grateful for you and uh, for the lessons you have conveyed to us. Um, Thank you. Thank you.
2: I I would like to also ask you one more question. Yes, ma'am. The one I asked, when did your childhood end? And the second question, would you like to be married to you?
0: The first question, I think my childhood possibly ended, as you have described, at the advent of addiction. So for me, this is around 15. I think this is where I was arrested and perhaps, uh, yes, in a chrysalis of chemical formaldehyde inhibited, not growing. And I would say now after 18 years clean and in recovery, Uh, thanks to the principles of uh, the 12-step program and to a higher power, a God of my own understanding and to a dedication to service.
2: That's the best thing that happened. The 12-step program, when two drunks went to uh, Carl Jung and, and Carl Jung said to them that addiction cannot be dealt with psychotherapy because it's a spiritual issue Uh, and then that's how the 12-step program the best thing really that happened for millions and millions of people is the 12-step program. I want everybody to go to the 12-step you don't have to drink you don't have anything that you do in excess. Some people talk too much And some people drink too much, but also some people eat too much as well or talk too much. And as long as you can find the balance between working, loving and playing and become your own parent and and ask yourself, is this good for me? Is this empowering me? Do I feel soft and warm or cold and stiff? You know that your self-dialogue changes your body chemistry and that is science.
0: This is. Thank you for that. Uh, that's a, a beautiful note. Also, I will say that um, I would marry myself and I think my w- wife would be glad of the relief.
2: Oh, thank you. Uh, give her a big hug and make her breakfast Sunday morning.
0: You've got it, ma'am. Thank you very much for your time once again. Thank you. Thank you. Your time and for your love, of course. Thank you. Thank you. Much love to you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation between me and Edith. If you want to hear more content like that, and more episodes of Under The Skin, you can have a week's free trial and you can get a subscription for as little as $2.99 a month. Go over to luminarypodcast.com. If you want more of my content, please subscribe to YouTube and get signed up to my mailing list where you get unique content. Thanks once again to you, Edith Eager. And uh, thank you to everybody at Luminary for this episode of Under the Skin.